Welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Exodus chapter 20 again. We've been in a series called Written in Stone, and we're continuing on with it. Well, back in the late 1700s, the French Revolution followed closely after the American Revolution. And the French Revolution was a, a little bit bloodier. Now, they had a different kind of system than we had. And because the king lived right in France, unlike us, the king lived across the ocean, they decided they needed to get rid of the king. They quickly executed him and his entire family. But what you see after this is even after the king was gone, anything that reminded the people of France of the king, they felt like needed to go as well. And in France, during the, or before the French Revolution, they had what we would call a state religion. And state religion was Christianity. So because many of these people who were so frustrated with the king wanted to be rid of him and everything that reminded them of him, they decided that they needed to get rid of Christianity. Now we talk about in our country a lot, how, how our country is changing, how our country is steadily moving away from God. And we always say, like, this has never happened before. But it's happened many, many times in many countries. It just happened happens to be our term. This is called the de-Christianization of France. And they did everything they could to get the populace of France to forget about God and to forget about the religion of Christianity. They went to a 10-day week in hopes that people would forget what the normal day of worship was. And anything that represented God had to be destroyed. If it was a statue of an apostle or a statue of Jesus, it was smashed. Anything like a cross was um, destroyed and burned. Anything that reminded people of God was considered insulting. And I've always studied this because I believe that everything in a historical context also has a spiritual context before it. And I wonder why during the French Revolution did, did a religion and the grace of God that was celebrated before this time, why did it suddenly become considered insulting? Why did it suddenly become considered something people wanted to get rid of? And what I've always been pointed to is that there's a heart problem in people. We don't like to be reminded of God. Even as Christians, even as people who are churchgoers, honestly, from time to time, we find ourselves going a direction and a reminder of God and the fact that we are not God is considered insulting to us. Where does that come from? Why, why is it that humans cannot handle the fact that we are not the supreme ruler? Well, if you look at where spiritual movements come from, you have good or bad, but, but with this particular example, I think that this was Satan working in France, just the way that I believe that Satan is working across the world and in our country today. Satan was working and he was celebrating the fact that he could get rid of everything that reminded people of God and he could get them to hate things that reminded people of God. And Satan wants to destroy all reminders, all reminders of God in this world. And as we come to this, this next commandment in our, written in, stone, um, in our written in stone series, that's what we see here is that God is warning us about Satan's want to destroy things that were put here to remind us of God. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We've only got one verse, with, uh, one verse today, and that is verse 13. Four words, the shortest sermon text ever. Verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. 
Now, if you'll remember, the Ten Commandments are not about the ten special rules that we should follow. The Ten Commandments are about bringing us back to the point of creation, that God is teaching us how he wanted us to live in the relationships he wanted us to have in the beginning before sin nature. And so half of these commandments, or a little less than half of these commandments, deal with our relationship with God, and these others that we're in now deal with our relationship with others. And I know what you're thinking. If, if the sermon text this morning is four words, we're leaving early and we're going to Father's Day lunch early. I know what you're hoping for and I'm sorry. We're going to be here for a long time because there's a lot of questions, a lot of questions about this text. As simple as it seems, as simple as it seems, there's been a lot of questions from Christians and followers of God of, of what does it really mean? Where's the line? Where's the line with this particular commandment? I'm aware of some Christians who will refuse to serve in the military or refuse to serve as a police officer because it may put them in a position where they may be called upon to take the life of another human being. And fearing that they may break this commandment and be displeasing to God, they will not do that. I don't know if that's right or wrong. You take this commandment and then you have to justify it. With God here in the commandments, he says, thou shalt not kill. And then in the following books to this same group of people, he gives them orders to go into the land of Canaan and kill everybody. So how do we justify the fact that we have a God that says don't kill, that then says do kill? What, what's, what's that mean and what does that tell us about this commandment? And of course, Christians have struggled for a long time with the concept of capital punishment. If the Bible says not to kill, should we support the government taking the lives of individuals for breaking laws? And then we see in both the Old and the New Testament that God gives the government that authority. And we question, well, how does that, how does that mix with thou shalt not kill? What, what about defending myself? Can I defend myself? Or if somebody tries to take my life, should I just lay down and die? Can I kill in self-defense or defense of my family? What's, what's the question with that? And so suddenly these four words have, have a lot of ambiguity with them, a lot of, a lot of things that a lot of Christians don't understand. And so we want to dig in a little bit deeper and see if we can understand truly God's heart and what he's saying in this and why he says it. Now, I want to remind you that, that when we read our English version Bibles, that this is not what God originally wrote. He didn't originally write it in our language. If we want to get closest to God's word, we go back to the original languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic to understand what God was saying, because we can understand things in that language that may not have translated to English very well. And so that's why very often I point us back to a Hebrew or a Greek word. Today, the word here translated for kill is razah. And it is one out of seven words in the Hebrew language for killing. It's one out of seven words. There are other words that are used in a more general sense. Razah is used in a little bit more of a pointed sense. And for us, when we translate this, thou shall not kill, it gives us some confusion because kill for us is a general term, isn't it? Kill for us could mean don't murder people. That, that's different than saying, um, I, there's a lot of hunters in here. I killed a deer this week. That's a different kind of killing. Some of you are like me and Jessica, and you can't grow a plant to save your life, and you kill them. And we use that same word for killing vegetation. It's even become slang in our country, or in our language rather, for us to say that we're killing time, or to say somebody on a sports team is killing it. That, that word is very general for us, and it brings confusion. And other Hebrew words fit that more general sense. So for that reason, a lot of times you'll hear this taught and other, other Bible translations go ahead and translate it this way, thou shalt not murder. But it's, even though it's a little bit closer, thou shalt not murder is still not completely correct. 
If you look at the word rizal in the Hebrew, it is used, I think, 46 times in the Hebrew. And most of the time, it does refer to premeditated murder or something of that effect. But also, in the Bible, God uses this word to define accidental killings. Times when maybe you were negligent in some way and your actions resulted in the death of somebody else. It wasn't premeditated, but maybe, maybe that happened. I think today we would call that manslaughter. You're driving your car too fast and you lose control of it and a life is lost because of it. This commandment also commands us not to do that. Which strikes me as a little bit odd because you could then translate this, thou shalt not accidentally kill people. And I don't know how you avoid accidentally killing people. The second you decide to accidentally kill somebody and make a decision to or to not do that, it becomes murder. So maybe the best definition of what God is saying here is you shall not illegally kill. But once again, that's imperfect because just because it may be legal or illegal doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong with God. And I'll be honest with you, we can get tied down in understanding all these words. And this week studying for this, I did. I spent a lot of time going into these words and trying to understand what is God's truest heart in this. If it can't be don't murder because it can also mean don't accidentally kill people. And what I realized is maybe we needed to, instead of narrowing down on the word, we needed to, to widen out and see if we could figure out the larger truth. And I think what God puts us in here for, our larger truth here, is God wants to teach us the value that he has for human life. That's at the base of it, is God wants to teach us the value that he has for human life, and he wants us to have that same value for human life that he does. So as we continue to look at this, we're going to ask ourselves, how does God value human life? And we might look at the punishments for that. You can see that murder or accidental death in the Old Testament was punishable by the worst punishment there is, punishable by death, once again, telling us about the severity of it. And the worst crimes equal the worst punishments. Therefore, we know that this is way up there for God. Our first take-home truth, though, as we look at this larger truth, is that God places a high value on human life. God places a high value on human life. We, we need to have that as part of our core as Christians, that God places a high value on all human life. Now, we may even ask about that because as much as, as much as we don't want to admit it, at our very being, you and I, we think we're special. Guess what we are? We're, we're just creation. That's all we are. This world doesn't revolve around us like we think it does. We're not as special as we think we are. We're just something God created. But yet, you see that God created lots of things. God created oceans and mountains and deserts. He created this world. He created the stars. And nowhere in the Bible is there another command not to destroy creation except for do not destroy the creation of human beings. So something about us is set above the animals. Something about us is set above the creation, all of the other beautiful things that we see. And so we ask ourselves, why is this wrong? What is it about human life that is so special to God? Why, why are we more valuable than the other animals running around? Why are we more valuable than somebody's pet? There are pets out there that live much better lives than me and you do, if you don't know that. Some people treat pets better than we treat humans. Why is it that God says that human life is set above everything else? And you'll find that answer back in Genesis 1. This is verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. Everything in this world God designed. 
Everything in this world, God spoke into existence. But the only thing in this world that bears a reflection of God's image is you and me. That's all that there is. Everything else, as beautiful as me, we might want to look at it, everything else fails when it is compared to God. But you and I, you and I, we bear his image. We are put here as reminders of God. We are put here as beings above everything else. And for that reason, we are precious. Listen to me carefully. You are more than the sum of your life, more than your good decisions, more than your bad decisions. You are more than who you are. At your very basic level, you are a reflection of the God of the universe. And for that reason, and that reason alone, we are more precious than anything else. The Grand Canyon is beautiful. If you've never been there, you need to see that. It will literally take your breath away. You can't grasp how big the Grand Canyon is. It's impossible. It, It doesn't reflect God. The tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, you can see that as a symbol of strength and power. And you might say that reflects God's power, but but it doesn't reflect God. You and I do. Only human beings, only human beings are image bearers in this world. And for that reason, Satan hates us. Just like the French Revolution, anything that was a reminder of God was considered insulting. Anything that people looked at and it made them think about God, it represented in God some way they wanted to destroy because it insulted them. And Satan walks around this earth today and he sees you and me and he hates us with a passion because we are reminders to him of a perfect God. Every last one of us bears this image of God. And it is so sad, it is so sad that murder has become so prevalent in our world today. But the reason for that is Satan wants to destroy us. And listen, I know you're sitting here in church and you're thinking, this one doesn't apply to me. If Satan can use you to destroy another human being, he will work in your life to do so. And and, and don't think it can't happen to me. It's happened to many people under different circumstances. See, the image of God is within us. And we often tend to think of that like like God is walking around with two feet, two legs, an arm and a mouth. And that's probably somewhat true. But but when the Bible talks about us having the image of God, it's it's not how we look. It's not about how we're built It's about what we are on the inside. You and I are the only beings in this world except God that has moral intelligence and spiritual capabilities. In the Bible, men see angels and they fall down and worship because they're so in awe of the angels. Those angels don't have the same spiritual and moral and intelligent abilities that you and I do. We are special. We are more than just a creation. It's kind of like our kids, Everybody in here loves kids to some degree, right? We love kids. It's VBS week, and that's like the most exciting week because we're going to fill this place up with kids, and they're going to come in, they're going to eat cookies, and they're going to have fun, and they're going to play games, and they're going to learn about Jesus, and we love kids. It is the best week in the world. But if we're honest, as much as we pour our hearts out into kids, we don't love all kids like we love our own. We don't don't love all kids like the ones that are ours. I mean, I love your kids. I'll hug them all day, but my daughter's pretty cute. At least I think so. And I feel like you feel the same way about your kids. You may love my daughter, but your kids are pretty special. I see some parents looking at kids and they're not as special as they think they are. Like that's, that's us. And the reason we love our kids is they are, they, are little, they are little versions of us. If you look at my daughter, she has my wife's face. She has my bad temper. She's a little version of us. And for that reason, for that reason, she is so special to me. That's how God looks at you. That's how God looks at you, is you are special because you bear his image, because you came from him and because he created you. 
And if you want to take this moment to kind of look around the room, you're welcome to. Nobody will do it because I said to do it, but you'll do it in a minute. You can look around this room and you can just marvel at everybody in here. Young or old, tall or short, no matter how we're built, we're all built in that amazing image of God. Even the people in this room that you don't like. Even the people at Walmart that you don't like. See, the value of human life is inherent because we are made in God's image. And that means the drug de dealer down the street, that you really wouldn't care if he got shot or not. That, that drug dealer who does all of those horrible things, he's made in the image of God and he's valuable. That person that hurts you, that you've held a grudge for for five and 10 and 15 and 20 years, who you think this world would have been better without, they're made in the image of God. Your ex is made in the image of God. Young, old, Muslims, Hindus, all races, they are precious to God. And taking a life is major because we are taking one of the images of God and destroying it. We're destroying something that's meant to remind the world of God. And there are certain cases where this is permissible, but I, I would just say that we need to use caution when we talk about executions and when we talk about war. Those are not things that we as people who value life celebrate. We understand that they may be necessary and we understand they may be permissible, but our hearts still break because the images of God that will be lost there. Our second take-home truth is this, is all humans are made in God's image and are equally valuable. I'm gonna say that again. All humans are made in God's image and are equally valuable. Underline that word equally, circle it, highlight it, whatever you do. Because it's very prevalent in our society that we have decided that some image bearers, some people are not as valuable as others. And that resides within every last one of us is that we have the ability to think that some people are less valuable than others. We can split that along political parties. We can split that along races. We can split that along people who go to that particular area, people from the city, people from the flatlands. We, we can say to ourselves that some people are more valuable than others within our hearts. And we see the effects of this on our society. Last year in the United States, 16,000 people lost their lives to murder. 16,000 people were murdered last year that we know of, by the way. Well, we see a rise over the past 20 to 25 years in mass shootings in places like churches and, and, um, and places like churches and schools where people have a problem in their life and they think that the solution to it is to take their hate out on other people, killing people. Every year, around a million unborn children lose their lives to abortion in our country every single year that we do. And we need to stop and we need to address the value of the unborn. Now, some of you may be sitting here and it may have happened to us. Maybe we were in a place where we felt trapped and we made a hasty decision. And without a doubt, everybody in here knows somebody that's been in that. And I just want to say, as we address this, we, we don't come to church to judge you or anybody else. As a matter of fact, I just want to hug people and say, Jesus has healing for that. And, and those people, more than anybody else, those people more than anybody else understand the problems that we have in our society with the fact that killing and taking the lives of unborn children is being praised and celebrated. And the world tells us it's a good thing and it's a freedom that we should have. And Christians, we can't stand for that. 
Several years ago, there was a movement going around on the internet called Shout Your Abortion. And what this was is it was women who had had got pregnant early in life and they decided to to end the pregnancy and they were bragging about how their lives were different now than if they had had the children. And And they were celebrating the fact that they had done this. It's now a book. I wouldn't suggest that you buy it, but as I was researching this, I found out they've made a book that you can buy of women who tell you about how wonderful their abortion experience was and how wonderful their life is because they don't have a child. And what I'm trying to telling you that for is I want you to know is the world is speaking loud on this issue. The world is speaking into Christians' lives, young Christians who may not be sturdy on the word of God yet, speaking into their lives and saying, this is okay and this is something to be celebrated. And we as Christians, we say, no, we can't do that. See, the question, the question that is being put out there is not, is murder wrong? That's not what the question is being asked. The question is asked, is it murder? Or is it better for those children to be lost. Every time this discussion comes up, one of the arguments will always be, well, what if that child was born to a family that wouldn't take care of them? If they didn't want the child, why would you want them to raise the child? Or, or what if the, that child has a, um, a deformity of some type? The statistics show that 53% of children that are identified with Down syndrome before their birth are being aborted for that reason. That's eerily similar to Nazi Germany in the 1930s. A former president once said, I don't want my daughters to suffer the consequences of bad decision, and that's why he supported abortion. And Christians may wonder, may wonder about those questions. But for us, when we look at a person, we don't see somebody, we don't see somebody who we can just dispose of. We see a holy and a perfect image of God. And so the question is, is with an unborn child, when does that person become an image of God? When does that person in, have the bodies with, or the, within them have the properties of God? When do they become a reflection of God? Is it at conception or is it when they have a heartbeat? Some people will tell you it's, it's only when they begin to look like a human or some people will tell you that it's when they're viable outside of the womb. Is it at the moment of birth? I've got a picture coming up here. This is, uh, see if you can recognize this picture. Anybody recognize that? That's Oakley, that's right. Isn't she cute? This was a 3D ultrasound that we had done just a, just a little bit before Oakley was born. And, and this is another one of those moments. If you know my dad's story, my dad's story was not full of like, oh, I love her so much. My dad's story was full of, I'm about to pass out every time something big happened. And we went to this 3D ultrasound to get a better look at our daughter. And we took my mom and we shared this with her. And, and Oakley exhibited a lot of the traits we now know her to have. She's being very stubborn. She kept burying her face into some something in there. I don't know what she's doing, but where we couldn't get a picture of her and no matter what you did with her you couldn't coax her to come out and so the, the, the technician was taking that little wand thing whatever and she was like stabbing my wife in the belly trying to get Oakley to move trying to get her and you it was so funny because every time she'd do that you would see this face come over her just as like this very grumpy I'm pretty sure she growled in the womb and, and what we have found since then is what we saw in that moment even before she was born we saw that she had the personality that she has now. She was a person. 
She was an image bearer. And the Bible backs this up. This is not just a story about me telling you about my daughter. Listen, this is, this is biblical that God tells us this. Jeremiah 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Isaiah 49 says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. The first person to recognize Jesus Christ and the Messiah was an unborn child when Jesus was unborn. When Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and they're both pregnant, one with Jesus and one with John the Baptist, Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah because John the Baptist jumped with joy that the Messiah was in his presence. See, the value of life, and we become image bearers at the moment of conception, and we can't let the world tell us different. But let me also point us to the fact that that we need to have grace and understanding and love, and we need to pray for people who don't understand that yet. We need to pray for them that they come to that understanding. And so what I want to get at with everything that we've just said is I hope more than anything, I hope you and I, we reflect the heart of God. I want to reflect the heart of God in this world. I don't care how many people are in this church. I'm glad that you're here and anybody wants to come is welcome. We're not growing a church. We're sharing the heart of God with the world. And if we are going to have the heart of God, we need to value life with the same intensity that our God values life. So important. And some of you are sitting here and you guys are my favorites because this was me. You're sitting here and you're going, this message isn't for me. This is not a sin I struggle with. I don't, I don't, I value life. I've, I've been pro-life since before I was born. Me too. That'll sink in about 10 minutes. Okay, uh, I, I, I've been pro-life for all this time. I've never murdered anybody. I'll never murder anybody. I'm a good person. I've never done that. This one's not for me. And I think we've thought that about all the commandments. Pridefully, we come to church and we go, I've got those down. I might struggle with one on down the line, but these I have. I've never murdered Brian and we can just, we can leave now. But what I found with all the commandments, if if you dig deep into the scriptures, it's not as cut and dry as it appears. So the question I want to ask you before I let you go to eat that delicious Father's Day lunch, the question I want to ask you before you declare yourself unguilty of this, is your definition of murder the same as God's definition of murder? If you say you've never murdered, is your definition of murder the same as God's definition of murder? Let me read to you Jesus Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5. He said these words. He addresses this commandment. He says, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, but whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That's what we just covered, right? That's the commandment. Thou shalt not kill. And then Jesus says, But, I love that word. It's my favorite word in Scripture because it means God is about to change something. This is what Jesus says. I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council but whoever shall say thou fool shall be in the danger of hell fire I love what Jesus does here Jesus redefines murder Jesus redefines murder for us because you and I we sit here and claim I don't have any murder within me I've never been guilty of this sin but Jesus doesn't define murder the way that we do he defines murder as hatred This is our next take-home truth, is we define murder as an action of the body, but God defines murder as an action of the heart. And we, we affirm this week after week in our commandments, and every time we open the Bible, God looks at our hearts, not our outward appearance. 
That was one of the things that Jesus had to straighten out with the religious leaders of his day is they had all of these appearances. They appeared very holy. They appeared very perfect. They knew all the rules. They followed everything. They were so good by the world standards. But Jesus looked in their hearts and said, oh, you got some dirtiness in there. You've got some problems within that. Let me ask you, have you ever hated anybody? Because what Jesus is saying with his definition is, is your guilt, you're not guilty because you performed a murder. Your guilt is determined by if you've ever wanted to murder. I've got another picture coming up here. This is, uh, you guys know Billy Graham. Billy Graham is one of the heroes of the faith in our time. I love Billy Graham, and I'm sure there are many other Christians who did just as much that we don't know about, but I love Billy Graham. We know so much about him, and that is his wife, Ruth Graham, there. And what you may not know about Billy Graham is that his life was hard. Uh, Billy Graham preached to stadiums full of people, thousands of people flocking to Christ through the preaching of Billy Graham. But that took a huge toll on his personal life and his marriage. Gone most of the year. In an interview with, with some of the family members, there was a time when Billy Graham came home to see his family and his own children didn't even recognize him. That's how much he was gone. His own, his own children didn't know who he was because he had been gone for so long. In an interview with Ruth Graham, they were asking, and they asked her, said, has, has it been hard being married to Billy Graham? He travels all the time. He's such a big name. There's fame and there's popularity. She said, oh, yeah, it's been rocky at times, and our marriage has struggled, and we've had a hard time. And, and then the interviewer asked this question, Ruth, have you ever considered divorcing Billy Graham? And she thought, and she says, no, I've, I've never considered divorce. I've thought about murdering him a few times, but never divorce. <laughs> and if you're married, you felt that, right? It's like, that's, that's it. Now, that's, that's a joke, and I know that was a joke, so please don't think I'm getting on to Ruth Graham here, but isn't there some truth in that? Isn't there some truth that maybe we would never do an outward action, but man, I've thought about killing somebody. I, I've had hatred within my heart. I've, I've, held, I've held these grudges against people. I once had a friend tell me this. He, he was talking about, I think it might have been an ex-fiance, and uh, he was talking about it, and he was sharing some of his frustration with me, and he said, look, I'm not saying I hate her. All I'm saying, if, if she was on fire and I had a glass of water, I'd drink it. It's like, that's pretty bad. And I know, once again, he was making an attempt to be comical, but we start to see within ourselves, we start to see within ourselves this problem of heart hatred and not properly viewing, viewing and valuing life with the same intensity that God does. And Jesus addresses this idea. He uses two terms to talk about how we might speak to somebody or how we might express this. The first one, he says, to anybody who says raka, you gotta be mad to be saying raka. I don't even know what that means, but that's when you get so mad, you've been so mad, you just start growling, you just make sounds, you don't even know what the raka. Like that's, that's what it is. Now that was a word, that was a word in Jesus' time. I don't know why it wasn't translated, but it was an insult of intelligence. The next one he uses is fool, which is an, an insult of character. And so the example that Jesus gives us of hatred is hating somebody's personality. Dis, disliking them because of who they are. Disliking them because of traits that are in God's image. Yesterday was a long day for us VBS workers, and if you missed it, you missed a huge blessing. It was such a blessing to be here, so take this with the fact that I loved yesterday, but it's a long day getting ready for VBS, isn't it? And yesterday, Jessica and I, we decided when we left here later in the afternoon, we decided we wanted some good food. And so we went to a restaurant to eat. And, and as I was sitting there, I liked people watch. I love looking at people and how they dress and how they act and kids and how all these different things. I just, I really enjoy that. And this family walked in and they were unique. 
Can I say that? They were unique. And I found myself just kind of watching and my eyes would stray back to them and I, I kept having in my mind like, wow, you, you seem to be proud of your uniqueness. And, and maybe that's me. I'm a conformist. I don't want a lot of attention, but like, like they were kind of very obviously wanted to be different than everybody else. Like, why would you dress like that in public? Why, why would you act that way? Why would y'all, you know, have that, that way of acting in public? And, and I found myself judging them and how that they were. And all of a sudden I was reminded of what I had just sat down and prepared for this sermon. I was reminded of the fact that these people who had done nothing to me that they were just different than me, that I found myself within my heart disliking, maybe hate's a strong word, judging because they were, they were just a little bit different than me. And that doesn't even compare with the intensity of what I have in my heart to people who have harmed me or somebody I love. I, I want you guys to know, the reason I tell you those kind of stories is your Sunday school teachers and your pastor, we're working through this every day, just like you are. I'm not perfect at this. I sat there eating my hamburger and I began to pray for forgiveness. God, I'm sorry that I don't value these people the way that you do. And these people I've never met and will never see again. I had to I'd sit there and I just began to thank God for things that I could see in their lives. God, thank you that they're here together. Thank you that they're feeding their children. Thank you that they seem to have joy in their life. And I, and I had to address my heart and the way that I view people and the way that I value people because it's not the way that God did. And under Jesus' definition, he declares this murder. It's the same thing when you hate somebody as murdering them. 1 John 3.15 says this, is whoever hateth his brother is a murderer. I'm gonna say that again. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And some of you are trying to wiggle out of that. I don't have a brother. Whoever hurts, insert name here, is a murderer. Do you hate somebody? Does it hurt you in some way? We've got two reasons why God hates. This is our last thing on our, on our notes. Two reasons why God hates hate like it's murder. Number one is hate comes from a heart of pride and superiority. Be honest, who is it? I've been talking about hate. Who popped in your mind? Who do you hate? You don't have to tell me. I don't want to know, but I'd love to pray with you about it. But I can almost bet you that the first name that came into your mind is somebody who slighted you in some way. Somebody who comes maybe with a different worldview than you have. Someone who stole or cursed something that you love. Is somebody that you're jealous of because you think they look better than you or they have a better life. And in your mind, you're thinking, I deserve better. I would never treat people the way that they treat people. I would never act the way that they act. I would never do those things. Listen to this. Hatred is simply a judgment of your value compared to theirs. That's what hatred is, is you've made a judgment about your value compared to theirs. And there it is. And that's the problem, isn't it? Is I look at myself and I say, I, I would never be like that. I would never do what they did. I would never treat people like that. See, the problem with hatred and thus the problem with murder, it's not about how you view other people let me rephrase that. It's not about how we view other people. It's about how we view ourselves and how we judge other people by that. Because we look in the mirror and we say to ourselves, you're special, you're better, you're holier. And then in the back of our minds and in our hearts, we say, my value is more than others. I'm more valuable than others. No, you're not. You're not more valuable than others. 
regardless of how they've lived. Because what the scripture teaches us is that value is not established by our actions and therefore you cannot be devalued by your actions. See, every human, in case we missed it earlier, every human, regardless of what they've done, is made in the image of God. And for that reason, we are all uniquely equal. You're different than everybody else. God gave you talents that he gave nobody else. God gave you blessings that he gave nobody else. But you're not better than anybody else. You're not worth more. You're not more valuable than anybody else in the world. The second reason is this, second last note here. It says, a heart of pride and superiority comes from not believing the word of God. So we've been talking about a heart problem, but honestly what we have is a a faith problem. We, we don't believe God when he says that he made everybody unique and valuable. And so we have a problem believing what God says. And that goes back all the way back to commandment one. You know why we have a problem believing God when he says that? When we sit here and think, yeah, but what about that person who did this to me? Yeah, what about them? What about, what about the problem that I had here? What about that person who won't do X, Y, Z? What about the person who breaks those laws? How can they be as valuable me, as me? The problem is, is that we have it all mixed up because we think that the world is all about us when this world revolves around God. And this is why we get frustrated when we find out the world doesn't revolve around us. You ever get behind that person that wants to go seven miles under the speed limit? <laughs> and you're so mad. Oh my goodness, some of y'all, we're gonna talk about the sin of road rage later. Some of y'all getting red in here. Like, like you get so mad, like, why won't you drive the speed limit? You know where that comes from? It comes from a heart of thinking that everybody in this world is placed there to get out of your way. It comes from, it comes from thinking that because they inconvenienced you, they're in the wrong. It comes from a heart and it comes from a faith problem. That's a, it's a sin that's too familiar. It's one that's outlined in all the commandments is that we don't understand that we're not God. And we don't understand that this world doesn't revolve around us. You guys, I'll be honest with you. I think that we come to church and we assess ourselves every week and that's a good thing. And we wonder where we're guilty at and where we're not guilty at. What what things have we done and what things have we not done? What things do I need to get right with God? Listen to me. There's not a person in this room who's never hated. There's not a person in this room who's never had the heart problem of judging others and not seeing their value the way that God has not seen that value. And so if you're wondering your guilt today, let me just say, I love you. But according to Jesus, you and I were murderers. And the punishment is laid out so clearly in the scripture. Genesis 9, 6, whosoever sheddeth a man's blood, whosoever murders, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God, man he made. So see, this guilt we carry for this hatred in our heart, this this murder in our heart because they're the same thing, that, that guilt that we carry, it makes us worthy of death. And listen to me very carefully. Death you will have. It may not be today, and it may not be by the government, but death we will have because we serve a God who is holy and a God who is holy enough to see into our hearts and no sin, whether other people see it or not, goes unnoticed by him. And he sees the hatred within our hearts and the punishment is sure. In the Old Testament, just right, right after the Ten Commandments, God began to set up a system to make sure this punishment was carried out. 
And there was these individuals who were called Blood Avengers. And I love that. That's like a movie, right? That's like an action movie. These Blood Avengers were family members. And if somebody in their family got killed, it was their job to go make sure that the punishment of death was put on that person that put on that person that took that life. And God prescribed this. This is the punishment and the system that God made up. So God made this punishment, but listen, the same God who made this punishment, he made a way to escape this punishment. In Israel, starting in Exodus 21, one chapter after the Ten Commandments, God begins to put forth a plan for what he called cities of refuge. And that means that if you were guilty and if the blood avenger was coming after you and he was going to punish you for taking that life, you could run to that city of refuge. You could run there and as long as you resided within that city, as long as you resided in that place, you were safe from blood avengers. You were safe from losing your life. God made the punishment, but he made a way for you to get out of the punishment. And, and today, as we look at our guilt, God prescribed our punishment. God prescribed eternal, everlasting death. God made hell for us to be separated from him forever. That's, that's what the punishment is for the hatred in our hearts. But listen, the same God who prescribed the punishment, he made a rescue plan for you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Live if you want to come up here. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and be your refuge. And if we're found within Jesus Christ, if we run to God for our refuge, we can't be punished. Our guilt is no less, but that punishment was put on him instead of us. The same God who says you deserve a punishment says, I'll find a way for you to escape it. And today, I have never been more convinced that a sermon I've preached has affected everybody in the room because every last one of us is holding a grudge and holding hatred against somebody somewhere. Today, I just want you to know we're guilty. And if you haven't found your way out of that guilt, Today's the time to find your refuge in Jesus Christ. And if you're like me and you're a Christian and you need the time to pray and repent because your heart does not correctly value and reflect God's heart when it comes to human life, I just want to say this is open for you. We don't judge you. I told you about me. I had to spend some time praying yesterday after spending all week studying this. Take some time to get our hearts right with God. This is our reflection time. Don't leave any business undone with God.